0: This morning's Bible reading, the first one comes from the book of Jonah, uh, chapter 4. If you're in a pew Bible, that's 917. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. He prayed to the Lord, "'O oh Lord, is this not what I said when I was still at home? "'That is why I was so quick to flee to Tarshish. "'I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God.' slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who re- relents this from sending calamity. Now, O oh Lord, take away my life for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, have you any right to be angry? Jonah went out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, "'and waited to see what would happen to the city. "'Then the Lord God provided a vine "'and made it grow up over Jonah "'to give shade for his head, to ease his discomfort. "'And Jonah was very happy about the vine. "'But at dawn the next day, "'God provided a worm which chewed the vine "'so that it withered. "'When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind.' And the sun blazed on Jonah's head, so that he grew faint. He wanted to die, and said, It would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, Do you have a right to be angry about the vine? I do, he said. I am angry enough to die. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this vine, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. But Nineveh has more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left and many cattle as well. Should I not be concerned about that great city? New Testament reading is from Romans chapter 3 and starting at verse 23 and that's on page 1114. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just, and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. This is God's word.
1: Well, last week, at the end of chapter 3, well, through chapter 3, we saw the incredible repentance of this great city of Nineveh. All the people in the city, from great to small, from the king right down to the animals. Uh, Well, they turned, the city turned from their evil ways and cried out to the Lord, hoping that Jonah's God, the true God, the creator God, Yahweh God, might turn and relent from the judgment that he had announced. And right at the end of chapter 3, in verse 10, That's exactly what God does. Let me read that again. 3 verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction that he had threatened. Chapter 4 that we're looking at this morning now really brings us into the heart of this book It explains to us why it is that Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh in the first place. Why it is that he fled to Tarshish. We see Jonah's response to God's mercy in chapter 4 verse 1. To Jonah this seemed very wrong and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That's why I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger, abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. God has relented from the judgments that he threatens. Remember last week, the king of Nineveh hoped that God might send mercy cry out to the lord who knows he said back in chapter 3 verse 9 he he just hoped he had nothing else to do he just hoped but here we see in chapter 4 that Jonah knew for certain that god would relent if they turned from their evil and that's why he was so angry how did Jonah know that god would relent well it's because of who god is if this is what god normally does See, Jonah here is quoting from the book of Exodus. Let me put this on the uh, PowerPoint. There we go. Exodus chapter... That should be 34. Sorry, I've missed the three. Uh, Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. Now, let me just set a little bit of context here. Right after God had brought the Israelites miraculously out of their slavery in Egypt... He brought them to himself at Mount Sinai, where he spoke to them the Ten Words, the Ten Commandments, uh, calling them to live as his people. And all the people said, we will obey, we will do it. One of those commandments included the instruction that they must never make for themselves an image. They must never try to represent God. Because any kind of image is always going to inadequately represent God. God is a God who speaks, he's alive, he, he, he hears and he, he, he's, 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 he's a person. Whereas an idol is just a lump of wood. It's dumb, it's a block. How can that adequately represent God? And yet, while Moses was up the mountain receiving the other instructions, the Israelites were down in their camp, they'd sent up Moses because they were so afraid and yet, Moses delayed and they built a representation of God. They did exactly what God had told them not to do. They built a golden calf. And God was angry with their rebellion. He'd just spoken to them about this and said he was going to wipe them out. Wipe out the nation and start again. If they can't even do uh, you know, these these things. So immediately after he had spoken them, what hope is there in the future? I'm going to wipe them out and start again, is what God had said. I mean, uh, often God's relationship with people, his people, is likened to a marriage. God is the husband. Israel is the wife. They've just got married. They've just said their covenant promises to each other. I do. I will be faithful. And yet on the honeymoon, virtually, Israel is off adulterizing. They're off sleeping with somebody else. It's it's inconceivable what Israel has just done. That's why God is angry and is rightly so. But what we learn is that Moses, the great Moses, intercedes on behalf of the people. He cries out, Lord have mercy on these people. What would it look like to the Egyptians for you to wipe them out and start again? And God relents from the judgment that he'd said. He still punishes the people, but he doesn't wipe them out like he'd said he would. He continues with them. And immediately after that episode where God showed mercy and relented, Moses said, show me your character, show me your name, give me your name, tell me your name. And a person's name, God's name, is his character. And Moses was hidden in the cleft of a rock as God's glory passed by him and God announces his name. And this is his name. This is what God says. This is his character. Exodus 34. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and the fourth generation. See how Jonah is quoting what God had said to Moses? God's name. This name of God is quoted quite often through the Old Testament, in the Psalms, in other parts of the prophets. We could almost call it like a creed, a character creed. God's character is put in this creedal form where they they know what God is like. Jonah knew. What God is like. God has revealed himself. And that's what we see caught up in uh, verses 2 and 3. God is gracious and compassionate, but he also punishes his children. He punishes the children. See, there also another analogy of God's relationship with Israel is like a parent and a child. And anyone who's a parent knows the challenge of balancing grace mercy and justice and punishment it's a difficult thing to do isn't it as a parent if you never punish a child and let them do what they want they can grow up to be self-centered narcissists who think they're the center of attention get away with whatever they want to do but by the same token if you punish a child for everything and never show them grace they can grow up becoming withdrawn and anxious and demoralized getting the balance Right is such a challenge as a parent and it requires wisdom. It's different from child to child as well, which adds another layer of complexity in a family relationship too, because you want to be seen to be fair between your children, but they respond differently. At one level, we've got to hold justice and uh, punishment and mercy and compassion in balance. But interesting in this creed here, it's not balanced in God, is it? Notice how God's love overrides His justice and punishment. God punishes to the third and fourth generation, it says there right at the end. He punishes the children for the sins of the parents, the third and fourth generation. We often interpret that as. You know, sin having consequences in time, down to the third and fourth generation. But it could be that God is God's punishment comes at a moment in time, and all, that entire generation at that moment—the parents, the the grandparents, the children, the third, and maybe the great grandparents—they're the ones who are punished at that moment in time for sin. And then God's love continues. Uh, And it extends, not to the third and fourth generation, notice how God's love extends to the thousands. See, it's not strictly balanced on scales, is it? Love and justice aren't things that have to be held in balance, but they need to be held together. Parents understand that. Uh, Punishment and discipline come in the context of love don't they the worst kind of discipline a parent can give to their children is when it comes out of vengeance or out of frustration or resentment rather than out of love when you're trying to get back at the child for what they've done to you that's the worst kind of discipline punishment is to come in the context of love but because you love your child, you're going to discipline them when your three-year-old hits your one-year-old over the head with a wooden block. You need to punish them for, their, for, 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 for the sake of the one-year-old, but also for the sake of the three-year-old as well, so that they don't think they can get away with that kind of antisocial behaviour. Now, when the child acknowledges their sin and asks for forgiveness, it takes a hard-hearted parent not to forgive, doesn't it? And Jonah knew from God that if the Ninevites repented, they wouldn't experience his judgments. Jonah thought, though, that the Ninevites deserved it. And that's why he gets angry. Did you see that in verse 1? He became angry. That's a kind of a soft translation there. He's becoming heated. He's becoming... um, Uh, very hot, hot under the collar. Or you might even say he's stewing in his own juices. That's how angry he's become. What is anger? We think about anger. The Bible doesn't actually define what anger is, but it gives us a lot of descriptions of it. Here's my attempt to uh, define anger. Anger is our response to what we perceive to be an evil. Anger is our response to what we perceive to be an evil. Anger is not necessarily a bad thing. Indeed, most of the references to anger in the Bible are references to God's anger. His is a righteous anger. He is angry at all forms of wickedness and evil. Indeed, that was what was captured in uh, back in Exodus 34, wasn't it? He is A God who is slow to anger slow to anger and he does punish Uh, in the Hebrew slow means long he's long of nose long of anger He's, he's long he's patient he's giving people opportunity to repent as he has with the Ninevites remember he gave them 40 days I think the problem so often with our anger is our perceptions of what of evil are often distorted and our response Is then often out of proportion to the evil as well. Jonah is angry, he's angry with God for forgiving the Ninevites. He perceives that as being a great evil, letting them off the hook like that. Jonah's so often like us, isn't he? We get convinced that we're right about a certain thing and we think we have a righteous anger But so often we're just deluding ourselves. We don't see the full picture. Our anger so often arises out of our own self-centeredness as well. We're angry when other people do the wrong thing by us, when other people offend us, but we're not always angry when other people are wronged. We're happy for that to just kind of slide by. Our anger is often self-focused. And we often see things only from our own perspective rather than from the perspective of others. And we don't often see things from God's perspective. And that kind of anger, when it erupts, is destructive like fire. It's hot. And yet, isn't that our society as well? So many people are so easily angered. Drive your car, anger, road rage. It's all on social media as well. Social media, I think fuels our anger and rage. Um, I came across this Jaron Lanier he was um, a computer scientist who actually pioneered the whole virtual reality things you know where you put on the goggles and back in the 90s the gloves and things like he was the pioneer of that he used to he worked for Atari before he he got into that he's written this book 10 arguments for deleting your social media accounts right now and this is his point let me read it negative emotions such as fear and anger, well up more easily and dwell in us longer than positive emotions. It takes longer to build trust than to lose trust. Fight-or-flight responses occur in seconds. The adrenaline hits us, whereas it can take hours to relax once you've got yourself up in that state. That's just the way life works. That's the way we're made. He says, this is true in real life, but it's even more true in the flattened light of algorithms. What does he mean? Well, he's saying that the algorithms that the social media companies use elevate and amplify responses that are immediate. What triggers those immediate responses in us? Well, it's much more likely to be fear and anger. Have you noticed how many social media, YouTube for instance, you watch the YouTubes, they're all about injustices of the world. They get your blood boiling pretty quickly because the algorithms elevate that kind of content. That's what gets the hits, that's what gets the revenue, that's what the advertisers buy into, and that's what gets the content producers their income as well. Twitter is full of rage and protest and condemnation of others. Social media polarizes debate, doesn't it? There's no middle ground of nuanced arguments. That kind of stuff does get that's filtered to the bottom of the algorithms. It's the you know grenades lobbed from each side of the extremes that what get our blood boiling, and uh, what gets the hits. That kind of anger lacks grace but sadly it finds a uh, a place in Christian hearts often too. We can be very quick to spot anger in others and accuse them of being angry, but sadly we're just as blind as Jonah to see it in ourselves and to see our own hypocrisy in that situation. James 1 says, My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, And slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Jonah is angry. Three times in this chapter, we're told of his anger. And God confronts Jonah each time about his anger. Look at verse 4 The Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Does Jonah answer God? Let's have a look. Verse 5, Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Jonah doesn't actually answer God's question, does he? He just kind of sulks off. Uh, He gives God the silent treatment. Is that what you do when you're angry as well? Give the other person the silent treatment? Perhaps he's Arrogant enough to think that, why, why is he going to these east of the city? Perhaps he's arrogant enough too to think that God will somehow, you know, do what Jonah wants and come and destroy Nineveh anyway. Or maybe he thinks the Ninevites might give up their repentance before the 40 days and then at the end of the 40 they're going to cop it. We're not told why he went to see what would happen to the city. But as Jonah retreats, God now... In his grace, again, his compassion comes to Jonah to try and give him an object lesson, to, to get through to him, to try to help him to see his double standards. In verse six, the Lord provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah, to give shade for his head, to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plants. We've already seen Jonah very angry about God's compassion but here he's very happy when God shows compassion to him he doesn't want compassion for the Ninevites but he's all very happy to have God's compassion for himself this is actually the happiest we see Jonah in the book even happier when he's been than when he's been saved by the fish he's happy about this plant we're not told what kind of plant it is the commentaries all have a kind of a guess at what kind of plant it is probably a probably a happy plant isn't it just joking uh, God, after having provided the plant, then in verse 7, at dawn the next day, God provided a worm which chewed the plants so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. Here's just a very small taste of God's punishment, isn't it? withdrawing his grace. He feels the heat of the sun and the east wind. How does he respond? Second half of verse 8, he wanted to die. He said, it will be better for me to die than to live. This is the third time in the book Jonah has expressed his desire to die. It's important to note here that Jonah's not suicidal. He doesn't contemplate taking his own life. As angry as he is, he recognises that it's God's to take his life, not his place to take his life. And in this situation, God then confronts him again about his anger in verse 9. God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plants? See, God's object lesson was designed to bring Jonah himself to see that he was wrong. Bring him to repentance. To bring him to the place where he'd repent and see that God is God. He's able to show compassion to who he wants to show compassion. That Jonah needs to trust the Lord. Instead, rather than repent, Jonah doubles down. Look at the second half of verse 9. He says, It is, I'm right to be angry about the plan. I'm so angry, I wish I was dead. Jonah seems hardened in his petulance. He's hardened. He shows he hasn't learnt anything by God's object lesson. See, Jonah wants to receive God's grace. He's happy to receive God's grace. He's very happy to receive God's grace, but he doesn't want to be changed by it. He's utterly self-absorbed. And then at the end of the book, God's final speech shows just how terribly warped his value, his, Jonah's value system is. In verse 10, the Lord said, You've been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight. It died overnight. Should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there's more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hands from their left, and also many animals? See, the value of the plant is so trivial compared to the value of the people and the animals in Nineveh. Jonah didn't plant the plants, he didn't make it grow, but God planted in a sense. He created the people of Nineveh and their animals and he cares for them. Jonah's upset when a trivial plant dies, but when God spares a city that's of immensely greater value, Jonah's filled with rage. See, Jonah is not on the same page as God, is he? He doesn't share God's heart. He has no answer for God's question. God asks in the last question and the book ends. Because I think the book is asking us, the readers of the book, how we would answer that question. Is God's compassion, is God justified to have this compassion for Nineveh? how would you answer that question now you've got to remember who the Ninevites were remember the Ninevites weren't the poor the downcast they were the imperial power at the time they weren't the oppressed people they were the oppressors indeed they were the terrorists of the time do you share God's heart for the oppressors do you share God's heart for the terrorists should God forgive them Should God relent of his punishment if they repent? Do you think Jonah has a point? Can you feel the tension here? Isn't violence wrong? Shouldn't Vladimir Putin be condemned for his war on the Ukrainians and the massive loss of human life? Shouldn't we be angered? Shouldn't we be outraged? It's interesting, the book of Nahum, a few prophets later, speaks of God's punishment coming on the Ninevites. it does come devastatingly the book of Nahum begins going back to this character creed again but he doesn't quote the mercy and compassion listen to what Nahum says he says the Lord is a jealous and avenging God the Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath the Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies the Lord is slow to anger but great in power the Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished Is the prophet Nahum wrong to say that about the Ninevites in the light of Jonah? It's complicated, isn't it? See, we're familiar with the question, why does God allow good people to suffer? That's the question of Job, isn't it? The righteous man who suffers, he hasn't done anything to deserve the suffering, he cries out to God. Why? We're familiar with that question, but Jonah's question is, why does god let evil people off the hook why can they get away with it well i think there's three things that we can say the first thing is that through jonah through the book of jonah i think jonah claims to know more than he does it's interesting at that point to compare jonah with job when job cried out to god for an answer When Job cries out for God to explain the way that he works in the world. At the end of the day, God doesn't explain himself to Job. But Job trusts God nonetheless. Job humbles himself before God. Jonah also didn't understand God's ways. But rather than trust God, he digs in against God. He's enraged with God. He's angry with God. He thinks he knows better than God. But in the end, that's just arrogance, isn't it? There are things that we don't know about God's ways that are mysterious in life. The way that life pans out before us, sometimes we feel like Job, sometimes we feel like Jonah. But at the end of the day, we've got to be humble and trust that God is working through that for our good. I think the second thing that Jonah shows us is that Jonah thinks that he's better than he really is remember how back in chapters 1 and 2 he never really confessed his sins he boasted in his prayer that he was better than the sailors better than others I think Jonah illustrates for us the great danger of being religious the great danger for us who are religious who come to church who uh, who, who, who know God is that we can become strangers to God's compassion see Jonah prays in chapter 2 he quotes the Bible here in chapter 4 but he doesn't share God's hearts of compassion it reminds me the same it reminds me of one of Jesus parables of the the lost son the prodigal son the younger son who rebels but then when he's in the mire he repents he goes back to the father and receives the fattened calf receives the the blessing the the warm welcome and embrace of the father That's the Ninevites in many ways isn't it they've repented they've turned back to God but remember the true lost son is actually the older brother the older brother never goes off the rails but he never recognizes his need of the father like Jonah the older brother gets angry with his father's compassion. And in doing so, he shows himself to be the truly lost son. That's our danger too as Christians. We minimize our sins. We don't appreciate that given the opportunity, we'd be no different to the Ninevites. None of us deserve God's grace. We are all sinners. That's what makes grace amazing. If a sinner, no matter how bad they are, repents turns from their evil, turns from their rebellion against God, there is forgiveness. And if God can turn from punishing the Ninevites when they repent, he can turn from punishing a Putin if he would repent. And if he can turn from punishing the Ninevites, he can turn from punishing you and me. And that's the great news of the Lord Jesus, isn't it? And that's the third thing. It's been said that in the cross of Jesus Christ, God's justice and his mercy, they come together and kiss. We've remembered that as we've celebrated the Lord's Supper this morning, haven't we? God punishes sin. He doesn't sweep it under the carpet. God punishes sin. When Jesus died on the cross, that death was the punishment we deserve for our sins. Jesus stood in our place. He was the sinless one who went before us. And because he is God, his sacrifice covers all the sins of the world. And in that, that act of justice, of punishment, of anger, is also the greatest act of love, isn't it? Since through Jesus' death, we can come back and know God as our Father. We have experienced his compassion and his love. That's what Paul says in Romans 3. As we read before, all have sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the, the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because, in his forbearance, forbearance he left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did this to demonstrate, and, and therefore, punished in Jesus in his death on the cross. But he did this to demonstrate his righteousness at the present time. So as to be just, God is just as well as loving and gracious. And we see that in the cross, that he's the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. So the book of John is not straightforward, is it? There's a complexity to it. But if we've experienced God's grace and compassion in Jesus, then we shouldn't think of ourselves more highly than we ought. We need to share this message with all. We can have a kind of a reverse uh, snobbery, in a sense, where we think the gospel's just for the poor, the, the downcast, the refugees. It certainly is. But it's also for the elite, the powerful, the kings. God's gospel is for all. We need to proclaim it to all. We need to live in the light of his mercy.